you know, you, you all, I think you walk through life with all these different frameworks. And I think particularly as activists and artists, we have these, the frameworks become siloed, mm -hmm. right? So like, Uncle Vincent would come to our actions and we as musicians weren't singing. Mm -hmm. um, when I stepped into Momentum, I met a lot of really brilliant artists who do not bring their musical practice to yeah. the place. Yeah. Um, but I also met a bunch of activists who don't bring artists to the table at all until like the cake's pretty much finished and you want to put icing on it. And so one of the big takeaways is like, oh wait, 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 wait. As artists, we can help lead with this portion, this piece of technology. This is Healing Justice, a podcast bridging conversations at the intersections of collective healing and social change. I'm your host, Kate Warning. And this week I'm talking with Johnny Five and Br'er Rabbit of the band Flowbots. I met them in 2014 and I know them as Jamie and Stefan. And they have really brought the healing power of song and creativity to our movement community in many ways. And in fact, last fall, around the time when they were experimenting with their own podcast, which is called Johnny and Brayer's Friend Cast, check it out uh, if you want to have some fun and listen in on some kind of behind the scenes moments with the band and their friends. Uh, we were playing around with podcasting together and really learning and trying to figure out this medium, which we still absolutely are trying to do. And Jamie was here visiting Brooklyn and sat down with me to record the very first practice recording ever of Healing Justice Podcast. So just so that we can get a little perspective, I want to play you a little bit of the recording that we generated last September um, and let you kind of check out what we're sparing you from this week. So here's Jamie and I last fall. Okay, just testing to see how we're sounding. And sometimes we might talk a little bit louder, but sometimes I might actually be this quiet. So I just yeah, and it seems like picking it up. When I talk, it's getting picked up a lot more. So I'm going to scoot it towards you, if that's all right. Okay. I'm just curious what happens if we do this. Okay. You think one side is what more is sensitive? Mute? Why is it on mute there? Well, if you press it, it'll flash. Oh, okay. And then that's on mute. So this isn't. Whoa, so what? Oh, that that's when I moved it. So, um... <laughs> Why do I seem so quiet? I'm not talking quietly. Not anymore, you're not. Okay. Maybe I'm talking really loud, though. Well, maybe you just have a fuller, you'd have had voice lessons or something. <laughs> uh, okay, ready? Yeah. What's up, Jamie? Hey, how's it going, Kate? <laughs> I'm nervous. This is the first time that I'm recording, like, the beginning of a dream of having a podcast. But it's not, it's not your first time talking to another human being. That's true. Isn't that awkward? That was only one minute, but it probably felt like an eternity <laughs> of Jamie and I trying to sound test last fall. So we've come a long way. I'm really, really excited about what we're sharing with you today. I think it is amazing the stories uh, that these guys have to tell and the work that they're doing with music is deeply nourishing and inspiring. 
And you'll be able to tell from the sound that you're actually joining us between sound checks when they were recently here in Brooklyn and were performing on their Rise and Shine tour. So you'll hear us talk about a momentum training where we met, and that is a social movement strategy training institute that supports folks from the movement for Black Lives, climate justice, immigrant rights, the Jewish resistance, and more. And you'll also be able to hear a little bit of instruments popping in and out uh, as the sound check is kind of happening nearby to where we were recording. And you'll also hear us at some point make a joke about my partner, Josiah, who not only does all the visual art for this podcast, but also designed the album art for the Flowbot's most recent release, which is called No Enemies. And that album is influenced by some of the stories that you'll hear during this podcast that were shared by their longtime mentor and Southern Freedom Movement historian and professor, the late Dr. Vincent Harding. The album is also inspired by their recent grassroots work, hosting workshops, classes, and keynote speeches about using collective song to build social movements. So I encourage you to pick up a copy of No Enemies to check out both the music and the album art. And in case you aren't sure if you've ever heard the Flowbots music before, we'll lead into the conversation with one of their greatest hits, which is called Handlebars. And I think that there's a good chance that you'll recognize it. So thank you for joining us for this conversation. And here we go. Like it's good to be alive And I'm a famous rapper Even when the past are all crooked I can show you how to do si -do. I can show you how to scratch a record I can take apart the remote control And I can almost put it back together I can tie a knot in a cherry stem I can tell you about Lee Erickson I know all the words to De Colores And I'm proud to be an American Me and my friend saw a platypus Me and my friend made a comic book And guess how long it took I can't do anything that I want Cause look I can keep rhythm with no metronome No metronome Hey y'all, how you doing? Good, how are you doing? <laughs> um, it's awesome to be here at Rough Trade in Brooklyn, New York. And I know y'all are performing here tonight and I'm super excited to see you actually live for the first time mm -hmm. because we met in a movement and organizing context. Mm -hmm. um, and I would love to uh, just hear a little bit from each of you, like something that your fans may know less about, which is your own sort of history and um, the way that you came into movement work in addition to your music. So if you don't mind kind of introducing yourselves so folks can recognize your voice and sharing a little bit about what brings you to the movement work. Wow, um, this is Stefan, also known as Br'er Rabbit. Um, Jamie and I grew up together and I saw it. We've known each other for a very, very long time, and our families were friends and such, and uh, had very similar politics and orientations. And so in some ways, I think, if I get totally honest about it, it's really difficult for me to say, like, when was I ground zero for the beginning? Particularly coming from a household of radicalized black women. Mm. It's just generational. 
type of thing. And I felt like every day for me was a little bit of a training camp in, okay, here's the injustice. Here's how you found how you find power in this situation of injustice. My parents were very deliberate every day. It's like, okay, this is how you speak to Belize. Mm -hmm. Like you speak in this way and then you take the ground from them and then it's your situation because they already have scripts and they're ready. And it's like everything is from like even it's like you can't get in trouble in the same way that your friends can. Like, son, you always need to have an exit strategy. Any of the situations, if there's like a curfew ticket, you need to know when you need to run or when you need to stick around mm -hmm. and like how you can get you and your sister away safely. Just like so there's always this kind of um. Not wariness, but readiness mm. that was um, kind of baked into me from my parents. And then that, that readiness was also not just for self-preservation, but it was also about like, how do you protect your friends? How do you protect your community? How do you protect your identity? How do you not be in a defensive mode with your identity? How can you put your identity forward on your terms mm. and make them come to you in that way? Um, even my parents were really deliberate about using the media that I was consuming as a child to support that. So. My mother would put a radical analysis on the X-Men kind of thing. Like, like she, would, she would use what I was looking at and talk to me about different lessons. She's like, okay, you know that like Storm is really amazing, but black women don't actually look like that, but she is a powerful character. Like, da, 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 da. Like, so um, I feel like in, in many, like you have different grassroots values and different things. And I feel like uh, taking a uh, proactive stance against injustice was one of the uh, values of my family. Um, and then the other one, like coming very much from like the black church and such was, uh, you know, your gifts are not yours, they're for your community. Mm -hmm. And just like trying to figure out a way to refine your community at all points in time. Cool. How about you? Sure. Um, so I'm Johnny Five and uh, I, um, for a long time, I thought my movement work began in college when I started thinking about identity. Um, I'll often say that I started rapping in the you know, the post-Ice pre-M era. So I thought a lot about what it meant to be a white rapper um, after Vanilla Ice and before Eminem. Um, so I felt on the spot and kind of like I had to prove credibility in a certain way. And where that led me was to think about the, the art form that had come out of um, such oppressive conditions in the South Bronx that had been this creative response by people of color. Um, but, you know, that, that I was thinking about where's my place in that. And so thinking about identity issues led me to really a commitment to being an activist. Um, but then I much later realized that it was actually my, the kind of movement roots came from the church that I went to that was very involved in mm -hmm. Latin American solidarity stuff and um, a lot of activism locally. Mm -hmm. It's kind of embarrassing when we look back on the comic books that we made, there was so heavy-handed, social justice-oriented, mm -hmm. like just the all the way. The creatures <laughs> of the forest fight back against the... Uh, <laughs> The developers. Yeah. Like very literal. Basic boil, boilerplate comic book stuff. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> I mean, we were like 11, 9. Yeah. But yeah. That's pretty amazing, actually. <laughs> but I do remember something was incredibly embarrassing. I remember like always trying to get better with, about representation of women when I was drawing them because mm. my mother would check it out. Mm. I remember I drew this picture I've been working on all day and I show it to my mom. She's like, Stefan, that's good, but her breasts are really big. And I'm uh -huh. like, really? And I, cause I, cause I could see where like, I'd already reduced them, but I was still like, I was like a 12 year old boy. So I was like, yeah, just all of those conflicting things of feeling so embarrassed oh, that yeah. like I'd, yeah. yeah, all of those type of things. That's amazing. I didn't realize that you, like I've heard you kind of talk about the comic book thing, right? And um, I didn't realize that that also kind of came from your family and that your mom even affirmed. Oh yeah, like, my mom could speak Klingon. Like, yeah, I, th th you, 
if you look into it, there are probably a lot of um, black families who would watch Star Trek uh, because it was one of the first shows with POC representation mm. um, and like made it all seem normal. Um, and a lot of times like you'll find like a lot of, I think a lot of people of color will like go to sci-fi because um, a lot of the basic tropes that you'll find in other things um, aren't as prevalent. I mean, there's other ones that are just, just as problematic, but a lot of times like the race ones are not usually as heavily coded or there's an opportunity mm -hmm. around it. Um, and so my mother's family, like her brothers and sisters all loved comic books, all loved Star Trek. And um, I kind of transferred that love to me. And then mm -hmm. I went to 11 with it. So I want to ask y'all, because you both mentioned identity and mm -hmm. kind of your formation stories and Jamie talking about it later, which makes sense. Like as white folks living in this country, we mm -hmm. are required to be aware of our own identity much later, if ever. Mm -hmm. um, but I'm curious because y'all have been friends since you were how old? Ten years old. Mm -hmm. Since ten. So um, you're white, you're black. Right? Like how, what were the conversations about identity at that age? Or did it come up, like did it occur to you and how has that kind of transformed throughout your friendship? I'm trying to remember um, when in the course of our friendship, there, like what racial awareness was like for me in fifth grade. I remember at one point making, this is probably much later, like middle school or something, making some, asking some question about the, you know, the name Shaniqua and like, I think I was like, why do black, why are, why are some black names names like Shaniqua? And he said, well, you should ask my mother. Mm -hmm. Like, she'd be happy to answer that question. And I remember, so what, the part I remember about it was not even so much the answer, but just the kind of openness of like, there's no such thing as a wrong question. There is such thing as an unasked question. And my mother would be happy to feel that. Mm -hmm. um, and so I'm trying to remember like early markers of like race or culture, cultural difference in any way. Well, Do you remember any? Now, like us both having been educators, working in education, all these things, mm -hmm. there's also a byproduct of being in a selective magnet program. So we were both in the highly gifted and talented program, which drew kids from all over. So there was more diversity a lot of times in our cohorts than even necessarily sometimes the schools themselves. Because mm -hmm. like, uh, Denver at that time was still like in many ways you could have like lots of different segregation, but these magnet programs, particularly the ones where, like, where Jamie and I were at place, was beautifully diverse. And um, like Jamie's group of friends that he invited me into like in the fourth grade was incredibly diverse. And I think, I think like Jamie kind of presiding over a group, especially in that situation where like in Denver at the time, the black and brown divide was serious. Mm. And it was not in Jamie's group kind of a thing. It was a safe place. Whereas like in the classroom on the blacktop, it was not type of a thing. So I think also in that regard, I think like Jamie's always had this like very, this justice-based orientation. And that's what also made it so much fun to create with Jamie. When we're working on these comic books, um, neither of us had to argue about like, well, like, no, no, let's have a, we need more women like in positions of like, like doing things. Like it's, it was just something that we did. Mm -hmm. And we're like, okay, well, like, we're reading all these comic books and it's just like a bunch of white dudes who are really big. And it's like, yeah, well, how about, okay, like, let's have this Latino cat. Like, he's the, he's the center of the universe. Ezekiel, in his mind, he will be the center of the whole thing and people won't realize it until the end of the whole timeline. Mm. Yeah. So when did Dr. Vincent Harding come into the picture? And if you can tell folks who may not be familiar with his work, like, just a little bit about who he is and, and who he was to you. Well, so I actually knew of him as two separate people for a long time. 
both of whom he was. Uh, one of them was I would always hear Stefan talk about his uncle Vincent. And I think at one point, um, probably around the time of your mother's passing, he, there was a lot of relatives around. And I think I probably met him then as one of many aunts and uncles who I met. And then I would hear from my father later on. Um, so my stepmother was teaching at a, a this place called the Isle of School of Theology. And I would hear about things happening there. And my father would say, well, there's this man, Vincent Harding. He worked with Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. You know, he actually, you know, was an associate of his and wrote speeches for him. And he's someone that I really respect. And I really trust his opinion on these, these different questions that were coming up. And I think, wow, this Vincent Harding is really a wonderful, great man. Um, and I don't even know if it was until I, at one point in, during college, was able to take, to audit a class from the great Vincent Harding. That might, it might not have even been till then that I made the full connection, like, oh, Vincent Harding is Uncle Vincent. Oh, my God. <laughs> oh, I, yeah, I, I know him through Stefan. And, oh, he must be an honorary uncle. Maybe, oh, yeah. right. Maybe he's not a blood uncle, but mm -hmm. that never, that delineation had never come up. Yeah. And um, so our families are really close to the thing, um, especially with my mother's work as a lawyer and her work in social justice and just... The black community in Denver, Colorado, like they became really tight, really fast friends. Um, coincidentally, when we moved back from Connecticut, we lived maybe five blocks away. Right. So I remember going to the park all the time, running around in the creek catching garter snakes, and then going to Uncle Vincent's house afterwards and showing them to him. Or he would have, he would always have blocks. And remember, we'd sit down and like his wife. Uh, Rosemary would always make weird things like Satan, like I'd never heard of before. And I'm like, it's Satan? No, no, Satan. Like, well, what is it? It's like, oh, it's delicious. Oh, she's talking to me about microbiotic stuff and all these things. Yeah. So um, we spent so much time there. Um, so Uncle Vincent has been there like um, pretty much from the beginning. And just being able to sit at a table, uh, hearing a bunch of people just talking about those things and absorbing it as you do as a child. It's, it was formative. He's... Um, kind of an anchor point for me. And then like, I think a real anchor point for Jamie and our period, J Jamie and myself, just for as activists, as thinkers, as citizens and human beings, his influence is just manifest. He's actually on the cover of our album of, of No Enemies because we wouldn't have had him without it. Can you say a little bit about like how he helped you conceptualize what your role is as creative folks in the movement? Um, we were kind of in this circle of people that he was encouraging and nourishing, uh, nurturing. You know, leader, he, he, he was a natural nurturer. He, he, yeah. he would look to leadership characteristics in other people, often sometimes to a frustrating degree. You know, people would invite him to speak. <laughs> and he would, even if it was 80 people there, he would spend the first uh, 20 minutes asking everyone to go around and say their names, the names of their, their mother's, their mama's mama and where their mama's mama grew up and have all of us say their full name. And he would do that no matter what. And, he could be, and because he believed in distributing... Um, the power and distributing voice and distributing um, kind of the space to the people in the room. And so he had that orientation regardless. Um, as we started making music, um, then he would really start emphasizing to us that, oh yeah, music was quite a tool during the, the Southern freedom struggle. Um, but it wasn't necessarily music that was just played by one person, it was music that was shared. And he would say to us, where are the songs for today's movements?
Hey y'all, this is Kate, and we are pausing for a moment to welcome in a couple voices from our community. This segment of the show is called Affirmations, and it is a community love sharing segment where we express gratitude for one another, and it takes the place of traditional advertising. Uh, We're taking it back for ourselves to shout out the important work happening at the intersections of healing and justice and those who inspire and support us. So this week, you are hearing from Lissa and from Sarah. Here's Sarah. So just last month, My organization, Sunrise Movement, brought in 13 new full-time volunteer organizers. And I want to appreciate these 13 young people for their sacrifice, their willingness to drop whatever they were doing, jobs, family obligations, applying to grad school, to come and spend a couple months uh, traveling and living in movement houses all for the sake of this vision of building an army of young people that can stop climate change and create millions of good jobs in the process. And I just so appreciate them for their bravery and the risks that they're taking in doing this. Many of them have never even organized before, um, but chose to take this leap of faith because they believe our democracy and our world is at stake. And that's the best thing they could be doing with their lives right now. So. So much love to the Sunrise Volunteer Organizers. So I want to appreciate my best friend, Natalie. Um, For the past year and a half, Natalie has been in a process of, um, of her own healing and asking a lot of questions about her past and her body. Um, and what she needs to do to walk through the world in a way that that feels good for her. Um, and I wanted to appreciate her for for letting me in to that and you know letting me see that. Um, I think she's been really brave in the ways that she's welcomed me into witnessing that. I think a lot of people go, you know, into some private holds and go do that by themselves. <laughs> and um, and yeah, getting to see her um, fight so hard for herself and me wanting that so badly for her um, has allowed me this window into um, into wanting that for myself too. So um, I love you and thank you, Matt. Thank you so much, Sarah and Lissa. And hey, if you would like to share a shout out, a gratitude, an affirmation on the show, we would absolutely love to include your voice. It's really easy to record a voice memo on your phone. And we have an online form that you can find the link in the show notes uh, to click to, to submit your affirmation to be shared on the show. You can also go to healingjustice.org and in the upper right Uh, part of the menu there's a button that says share an affirmation which leads you to the same place and the two that you just heard are actually the last two that we have on file right now so i've heard from a lot of you that you love hearing this segment this is your chance to submit for this segment so that it can actually continue if you love listening to it try sharing something so we can continue it if you know that this That kind of public positivity and gratitude is an important medicine for our activist communities. 
then please take a risk, share your voice. Um, Even if you think you don't like listening to your own voice, we love listening to you and your voice is important. So go ahead and click on the link in the show notes or go to healingjustice.org, upper right-hand corner, to share an affirmation. And we would love to join you in celebrating um, the people, the groups, the organizations, the plants, um, the historical figures, anyone, anything that has inspired you and supported you in your journey. We want to hear about it. We want to celebrate it and share your voice. So, hey, that just about does it for affirmations. Let's go ahead and dive back in with the Flowbots. This is a song that they have adapted for the streets from a poem by a Denver-based poet named Susie Q. And the song is called Sleeping Giant. I am a sleeping giant. Let's try that. I am a sleeping giant. Good. There lives a riot in my bones. There is a riot in my bones. I am a sleeping giant. There is a Vincent asking us where are the songs that was the real kind of it was the first seed um, because even when we first heard the question like because he was coming to our actions our trainings and as musicians our trainings had no music involved really and so he's like uh, my nephews my brothers where are the songs like well, he was very kind about it um, but he was just like putting that question forward and um, it took a while for us to be able to respond to it um, in many ways, it wasn't until we went to the very first Momentum training where we met you mm-hmm. that that uh, question really solidified for us. Wow. Because, um, you know, you, you all, I think you walk through life with all these different frameworks. And I think particularly as activists and artists, we have these, the frameworks become siloed, mm-hmm. right? So like, Uncle Vincent would come to our actions and we as musicians weren't singing. Uh-huh. Um, when I stepped into Momentum, I met a lot of really brilliant artists who do not bring their musical practice to yeah. the place. Yeah. Um, and I also met a bunch of activists who don't bring artists to the table at all until like the cake's pretty much finished and you want to put icing on it. Right. And so one of the big takeaways is like, oh, wait, 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 wait. As artists, we can help lead with this portion, this piece of technology. And um, the Momentum training really helped codify that. And that's kind of like the birth of No Enemies. It's like being introduced to the Momentum framework of like massive popular support Mm -hmm. and like inviting movements. And it's like, oh, music is the technology for that. Mm -hmm. And and it's great for the the state shifts as well. Yeah. That's really cool. I didn't realize that it was like at that moment that that was integrating more because I know y'all have like really led in your local community around the when do we stop singing piece and that that's also not part of our momentum curriculum. The training that we're referring to was in 2014 and it wasn't even on our radar to consider the importance of having artists and musicians and culture makers Mm -hmm. in the room for a movement strategy conversation, right? And uh, my friend Paul from Milwaukee was there too, who's Mm -hmm. a visual artist and a designer of events that bring communities together. And it really like 
blew open some of our understanding of this um, sort of more intellectualized theory of what does it look like to target the public and um, generate mass popular support as a movement building strategy mm-hmm. that obviously we need people who know how to motivate people and talk to people and like resonate at the heart level and not just through the way that we are framing our demands and like talking about the world we want, but mm-hmm. how can we help people feel it? And I feel like that integration in some ways is in a, from a different angle is what this podcast is about. Right. Right. Is right. like the healing world and the justice world and yeah. the way in which like, the, the siloing of saying, well, let me go here so that I can fight for a collective well-being and let me go hide someplace else right. to try to get my needs met for my <laughs> yeah, personal well-being. On the side, right. And that, like, we need to be creating the world that we need for one another in the way that we be as we're in movement space and that right. they can't be things that are dealt with separately. And the movements have to be experientially um, uplifting experiences, too. It's not just a matter of getting the right language. It's a matter of the experience of the movement being something that people want to return to. Yeah. Um, that, that training, the timeline of it was, I think it was either a month or two months right after Dr. Harding passed away. Yeah. And wow. his, when he passed away, it was, um, it was interesting because we, we uh, talked on the phone right after that and realized that, like, you know what, we don't, have to wonder what would Dr. Harding do right now? Like we're not ever going to ask that question because he was always doing it. He was distributing the the power, distributing the microphone. He was calling upon people in the room to be the leaders. And he did that so thoroughly the last, I mean, probably at least the last 10 or 15 years of his life, every time he appeared anywhere, he was so committed to that, that um, it was as if he was just taking the the, the kind of like light within him and, and making sure that he was lighting all the wicks of all, all of our hearts mm-hmm. around the room so that we had some of that in us. Mm-hmm. And it was only after he passed away that we realized how powerful that truly was because we also knew, okay, not only that we we know generally that it's up to <laughs> us, we also know specifically what we're supposed to do because he's been kind of nudging us and asking us about it. Mm-hmm. Just to, uh, Jamie, I want you to share the story um, very specifically about that emotional nurturing and why this technology is important. Um, Dr. Harding's uh, accounting of the kumbaya moment. Right, right. Um, something that would happen, I was I probably saw it two or three times, um, is that we'd be in some kind of a movement space and people would make the comment, um, you know, well, well, you know, we're not just going to, everything's not just going to be all kumbaya. And people who knew Dr. Harding would be like, uh-oh. <laughs> <laughs> oh, really? <laughs> you messed yeah, up now. It's, it's one of the few times like, I would see him get agitated in... Right. <laughs> And he would kind of say, like, when I hear this, people make that comment of kumbaya to mean something, you know, trite or uh, or um, cheesy or cor- you know, corny, whatever it may be, I don't think of what you're thinking of. Because I think of um, the history of people being lynched and the people who would sing, come by here, my lord, someone's dying, lord. Mm. Come by here, kumbaya. And I'll also think of because um, it wouldn't stop there. <laughs> I'll also think of a time when I was part of a training um, as part of the Mississippi Freedom Summer. He was part of a, a training that happened, I think, right before people went to Mississippi. And they were training a group of, of white and black northerners who were headed to the south um, to do voter registration registration training. And they found out that um, Schwerner, Goodman, and Cheney had gone missing. Um, you know, two 
uh, northern Jewish uh, volunteers and one southern black volunteer had gone missing in a car together. And they knew what that meant, that they'd gone missing, that they wouldn't be found. And so he had the task of telling all these new volunteers who were about to go down to Mississippi what had happened and to share that news and not to sugarcoat it. And so he shared it and they said, okay, we want everybody to take, take the afternoon, think about what you want to do. We're glad you've come this far. Nobody will think anything less of you if you go back home. Um, but take a moment, talk to your, call your families, pray about it, think about it. Um, and let's decide, you decide what you're going to do. Mm. And he said that while people were doing that, people started assembling in circles um, and singing. And the song they were singing was Kumbaya. Mm. And he said that at the end of that afternoon, um, almost everybody decided to go to Mississippi. And so he said, that's what I think of when I think of a Kumbaya moment. Damn. Yeah. It's, that makes me think of an experience I had recently, actually at a recent momentum training too, which um, the characterizing of a moment like that as people want to write it off as trite or be like, oh, like this is, um, I've experienced spaces too where people are like, oh, we're going to sing together. Like you're, we're like we're kind of like manipulating ourselves into a certain kind of feeling or something like that, right? Where there'd be some distrust in the room. And I feel that like around um, song and I also feel it around other things that we know help us feel connected and help us recover and take care of ourselves, which also crosses into like relational culture. It also crosses into like healing modalities, like what are the ways that we feel connected? And um, and it, it makes me think of um, in episode 11 of the of this podcast i was talking to candy carawan who uh was a cultural leader uh out of highlander center Mm -hmm. and still there since 1960 um leading song at highlander and um and one of the things that she said which i felt like put it most simply i've ever heard is um if you're going to be in this work for the long haul you need to look for the things that make people feel strong and unified that are already present in the culture Mm -hmm. and you need to bring those things into every single thing you're doing in your work because that is what's going to sustain you and at this recent training like i just noticed you know there'd be times that as a training and facilitation team Mm -hmm. at the end of the day we had led song with all the participants all day long and then we would go and we would debrief by ourselves And at the end of the night, when we were tired, when we needed to feel unified, there was like some resistance to singing together, Mm -hmm. where it was like, we didn't want to give ourselves our own medicine Mm -hmm. that we pedagogically believe everyone else needs. Mm -hmm. And I hear that too from healer folks. Like, it's like, you can go and provide and facilitate for others, but that's a whole different thing than like, how are you caring for yourself or handling your relationships like in your intimate bubble, right? Mm -hmm. And so I'm just curious about like, in your song leadership work, do you encounter that resistance, that kind of kumbaya resistance of like people who don't want to let that medicine in like all the way for themselves? Sometimes it feels like, sometimes um, when my life is a little bit more regular, I'm not on tour, I try to like have dinner ready when Jen comes home from work. And um, something that happens to me a lot is when I cook a meal, I don't, I'm not that hungry. Like I've spent all this time preparing it, I'm preparing it for her, like thinking, like getting, I put all the energy into making it ready for her, and by the time we sit down, I'm just like, eh, 
And I, I think that that's a really common situation. You talk to pastors, like like pastors are shepherding a, a religious community, and they're like, well, and like many pastors I talk to, they'll be like, yeah, the hardest thing is sustaining mm -hmm. yourself. Where do you go? I know certain right. pastors who make sure to go to like churches on other days, uh, right. so they can sit down and, and get it. And I think mm -hmm. in, in that same way, we we're finding ways for that. Um, it's been really helpful for us because like one of the things that Dr. Harding helped us like figure out the difference is like when you're writing music for an album for it to be sold, um, it's very different than when you're writing songs for people in the street to use. Mm. They're, they're entirely yeah. different modalities. Yeah. Um, but for us, in the process of trying to create songs and generate songs for the streets, mm -hmm. and it has to be vital for us, it has to be real for us. If I'm presenting a song that I don't really believe in, it doesn't hit right. Mm -hmm. Right, and that, that's one of the crazy things about trying to teach people to song lead is just like, yes, but you have to believe it. Right. If you don't believe it, it it's not going to catch fire. Mm -hmm. Or, um, in answer one of the other questions about like sometimes when we encounter that resistance, like sometimes we just have to start with it without apologizing for changing the space, mm -hmm. and like have people kind of be like, oh, I feel good. And it's like okay, let's do more of that. They're like okay, yeah. Or like, oh, one of the things like the the sing down. Uh, which is one of the activities we do. We feel like we kind of like introduce people to the power of it first, mm. and then afterwards start talking about like, mm. like oh, okay, right, I'm down, right. I'm down now. That, that's I think that actually is the the single biggest challenge of introducing song to people is that everyone feels certain that they already know what singing is, feels <laughs> like. You know, so it's not as if it's a new concept. It doesn't sound like a new concept. We're going to sing together. In fact, in fact, it sounds like a kumbaya moment to mm -hmm. people you know it mm -hmm. sounds like a uh, a flat concept that they know about and have already mocked and um vilified as a you know, kind of a silly yeah. um, activity yeah. and so we we have to take people through the process so that they'll feel it for themselves and have a little bit of an epiphany like oh maybe i like this um to have any hope of like getting buy-in for deploying it in a movement action yeah. mm -hmm. And I know y'all have multiple experiences, but is there maybe one that you would pick to share about a time that you were in a march or an action that songs showed up powerfully? Like, what is an example of that or even a story of a song that you created in your community? So in Denver, there was a, a Black Lives Matter 5280 held a march um, on the anniversary of, of, I believe it was of Mike Brown's non-indictment. Um, or maybe a bit of his, of his death. I think it was of his death. And the march was, I believe, not permitted, and it was, you know, from one location all the way down to the city and county building. And we had no enemies had been asked to create some songs and to help lead some songs. But it was a large march. And we were still fairly much, we were pretty much a drop in the bucket um, as far as that there was a lot of people there who had their own chants and their own songs. And so... The experience is powerful because we, we had one saxophone player and the rest were just people who were ready to lead songs. And we had some lyrics passed out, but, but by and large we were just trying to, to, to start songs and see if they resonated. And we would, we would start a song and sometimes they would resonate really deeply and it would go on for a while. Sometimes people would, they would fade away and people would return to the chants that they knew and felt comfortable with and that, that matched the mood. Um, Often we there'd be a, a chant and we would start a song to the rhythm of the chant and the sax player would kind of mm -hmm. um, clue people into the melody before we would start it. So there was there was that kind of 
interplay, respecting the, the culture that was already there, and then sort of testing songs and seeing what people wanted to take forward. And that felt actually very important. It felt a, a little bit humbling and a little bit like some wisdom we could carry forward is that you're never going to be, you can never craft the culture of the march. Mm-hmm. You can sprinkle into the existing culture and off, you can make offerings, but it is not up to you as a song leader to decide the culture of any march. Like mm-hmm. people will bring a culture there. Um, but what was was very powerful is that some key moments um, we really were able to, to contribute some the, the songs that we brought ended up being pivotal which is that when we made it to the city and county building there was a memorial held for people who lost their lives to police violence and then as we were leaving that we were asked to lead a song we led a very very simple song just with the words we remember you sax came in with some you know some eyes on the prize and some other songs that got the energy kind of sustained as we marched back and by the time we arrived back at the original starting point um somebody called out i believe that we will win and the sax player jumped in and there were some drummers there and it became it became like a dance party i mean it became this revel like this the celebratory reveling in our in the power of the people who had assembled there that went on there was dust being kicked up I mean and it was it, it was joy I'd ever experienced in the course of one action or march before. And what is what was so inspiring and so informational about that is like, oh, you can honor the emotional spectrum of your movement in one action. Mm-hmm. So like the songs can help contextualize. You got a bunch of people angry. Like there are a lot of people who are angrier than your movement, which is like all of our movements. If you can create a space for that within it, then people can be reflected, respected, and you can resonate. Mm-hmm. And you can move from anger to mourning to eventually joy. And that's that's all, I feel like all of that feels like agency. Mm-hmm. Like collectively, we get to choose how we're going to be. We will honor all of the emotions within this and move to the place where we want to be so we can sustain this. Mm-hmm. And I, like that kind of a collective care was, um, that's, what, that, that's one of the times we realized, oh, that's what some of this technology is for. Mm-hmm. Right? Music is this state-shifting technology where you get to take a little bit of the control out of the hand of the outside situation that create the outrage. 
Yeah. It's like, yes, these things will happen to us. And then how do we respond? Well, we respect where we are and then we get to where we want to be. And that's, that feels very awesome. It feels like there's lots of other technologies probably out there. Mm. But it all feels very tied into emergent mm-hmm. thinking. It, yes. Because it, at no point do you get to decide. And, and if you try to proscribe it, it, those are some of the flattest moments. I think mm-hmm. when, yeah. when we're asked to come up to the podium, to teach a song and make everyone sing it, Yes. Sometimes it works, but sometimes <laughs> some of those moments are just the flattest moments you can have. Oh, yeah. Well, in the spirit of designing song moments that are not flat, um, I'm wondering, I know you all are going to share a practice with us. Mm-hmm. And if you could just let folks know a little bit about what that will be about or for so they can decide to download the next episode if they want to try it on. Absolutely. So the practice we'll be sharing is one that we mentioned briefly before. Um, which is, we've come to call it the sing-down, and it's the practice that immerses a group of people in the power of, of collective song um, pretty organically and, and in a way that I think surprises people. Yeah, and it's a lot of fun. <laughs> um, some of it comes from like our backgrounds as teachers. Like Sometimes you just need to introduce the concept and then unpack it. Mm-hmm. And we feel like the sing-down is, is a really great organic activity. Every time that we've led it, particularly in training spaces, people aren't ready for us to stop. Yeah. And so that's it's, right. it's a great way to kind of then unpack the comments. And it's a great way to start the conversation about how do you generate these songs. Yeah. That's cool. Well, I've had a lot of fun doing it. I've been in the room when y'all have led it before. And I know you have to get back to your sound check now. It sounds like there's some so, drums being beat on right now. Thanks so much for sitting with me and sharing some of the brilliance that you've brought to our movement spaces and just for being heartfelt spiritually grounded, talented, and also just very ridiculous leaders. <laughs> Thanks, y'all. I'll take the ridiculous. <laughs> Thank you so much, Kate. Thank you for the space. You just heard a conversation between Johnny Five and Br'er Rabbit of the Flowbots and Kate Burning. You can download the corresponding practice about leading an exercise called the Sing Down that is super fun and also packed with music and examples for you to listen to that we'll release on Thursday. So if you listen to the podcast regularly, you know that on Tuesdays our conversations air and on Thursdays the corresponding practice is released. So you can look forward to participating in the Sing Down and learning how to lead it wherever you are, in a classroom, in your organization, in your team, with your family, I mean, wherever you want to practice it, uh, it's a really fun practice. There's also some really great resources in the show notes this week, including a link to the Momentum Trainings, where you can sign up for the email list, the No Enemies album. Um, There's a movement songbook that's really cool with lyrics and also a corresponding SoundCloud account where uh, Jamie and Stefan will teach you music um, and you can learn new songs. You check out that link in the show notes. And you can also check out Johnny and Brer's Friendcast, which is the podcast they host that I referred to. You can always submit an affirmation or a gratitude to air live on the show via the link in the show notes or by going to our website and clicking on share an affirmation in the upper right at healingjustice.org. And this podcast is only possible because of the people who contribute on a monthly basis to help fund the hard costs that it takes to produce this volunteer-run project. If you feel that you can join that effort at any level, please go to patreon.com slash healingjustice and help us keep this going. 
The links are in the show notes to find our email list and to join us on social media where we're sharing quotes and inspiring content every single day. And a huge thank you for the editing talent in editing this episode from Yoshi Fields and the mixing and production talent from Zach Meyer at The Coal Room. Thank you for your commitment to building movements that liberate all of us. I hope you can take some time to sing this week and we'll hear you again soon.